Of all the entries in the Little Blue Cookbook, none intrigues me like Mrs. W.C. Posey's Butterscotch Pecan Pie. My grandmother carried it cross-country with her from the hills of Appalachia to San Francisco, where she lived in a lighthouse with my grandfather during World War II. And though sugar was rationed, my grandfather had befriended a man who transported it into the city and would slip them broken or damaged bags. As my grandmother liked to say, they practically lived off butterscotch pie. Welcome to My Family Recipe, presented by Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. I'm Arthi Menon, your host. I'm also the lead editor of the original essay series on Food52. We're so excited that you can join us as we explore some treasured heirloom recipes and the swirling histories and delicious stories and wonderful people behind them. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Justice, a Nashville-based writer whose work focuses on food, music, and local life, and has appeared in Time, in Serious Eats, Southern Living, and so many other publications. Jennifer published her essay in My Family Recipe, back in February 2020, titled The Butterscotch Pie Recipe Grandma Carried With Her Through the War. It's a story about inheritance, about midlife crises, and time travel, and yes, pie. Welcome, Jennifer. We're so happy to have you join us. Well, thank you so much for having me. So Jennifer, you opened the essay by telling us how the small town you grew up in was first economically eviscerated, and then all but washed away. And this is the start to a story about you understanding your family history. How did this experience of watching your hometown disappear shape your perspective on history, on your own past, and perhaps help you navigate your present and the future? Hmm. Great question. I, You know, it was a really interesting place to grow up, but I didn't realize that at the time, of course. And mm. it, that mining or uh, copper was discovered in that area way back in 18, in the mid-1840s, 1843, I believe it was. And so mining happened in the area until um, the mid-80s when I was oh, probably around 12 years old. So I remember it happening and I remember the town being pretty bustling then. But it was also really interesting because it was the site of a um, major environmental disaster Mm. (laughs) because of the um, smelting of the copper to separate the the copper ore from the sulfur. Um, It caused acid rain that really, (laughs) it left a huge portion of the area there barren. So, um, I looked back to find it was 32,000 acres that were really just, it looked like the surface of Mars. Yeah, pockmarked and ravaged. Yes, and um, erosion. And it, my brother, we, we used to call it the dunes. So we we grew up in a really strange place, but um, but a lovely upbringing. And you write about this collection of papers titled The Little Blue Cookbook. Uh, that gave you a sense of promise, uh, a way forward, if you will, mm-hmm. and discover that this was something not only of great value personally, but also historically. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what can be found in this cookbook and how it's been used by 
you and your family? Yeah, so I feel like it was one of those, oh, family pieces of history that almost um, faded away because my mother, and she doesn't like it when I say this, but it's true, she's not a big cook. And she she does a lot of really interesting things, and she's a very creative person, but it, cooking in the kitchen was just not, you know, a thing that she loved to do. Right. So she didn't really use this little cookbook very much. And I didn't know it existed until, gosh, probably around 2015, I had started a a recipe storytelling exhibit called Dirty Pages. And it was all about these recipes that are well-loved and splotched and splattered. And um, a couple of friends of mine, Cindy Wall and and Erin Murray, another two other writers and food lovers, we decided to make like art exhibits that celebrate these dirty pages. Mm-hmm. And um, I was telling mom about it and she was like, oh, well, you need to see the little blue cookbook. And she pulls out this book that I had never, you know, I didn't, I hadn't seen before. And of course it was a treasure trove of these dirty pages. And, um, and it's, I love how, you know, the, the whole idea of this dirty pages project came to be because a friend had said, I'll always tell my daughters that they'll know the good recipes when I go by the dirty pages. And sure enough, you could tell the the (laughs) recipes that my grandmother cooked from the most because they were the pages that, you know, got the most love. And this butterscotch pie recipe was one. That was the first one that mom mentioned. She was like, oh, you know, your grandmother made this pie all the time. And there's a cranberry, um, like a cranberry relish that my grandmother would make for Thanksgiving that that saw a lot of action from that cookbook. <laughs> um, but the pie, and it's it's funny because uh, mom, you know, when she showed me this book, she said, well, let's just make the pie. And then I knew, I was like, oh, yeah, I've had this before, but I wouldn't have thought it until I tasted it. And it, But it, it had like a a note of familiarity to me and mm. but I don't remember my grandmother I don't remember being in the kitchen with her as she made it but it did feel familiar to me I love what you just said about you know how a cook sort of dog-eared sort of splatter stained pages are evidence that a recipe was obviously prepared over and over again and so the most popular recipes were fidelity yes but it, it <laughs> also I I feel like these splashes and stains you know tell us so much about sort of the life of the cook and 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 the, the intent of the cook as well. So I love that. Yes. I think I love these community cookbooks like this um, Little Blue Cookbook because, you know, it's one of these, it, it's just a stapled together cookbook, but um, the recipes are all submitted by different people in the community. And mom and I had a a great time one night, like after she had showed me the book, we had a couple of glasses of wine and I had the cookbook and I just was reading the names of the people, not even the recipes. Mm. And it would send her on, you know, down memory lane about, oh, you know, this person happened to, you know, work at this place and went to this church. And so we just, we had a blast sort of, um, really bringing the town back to life through yeah. those names and recipes. Um, and even the the butterscotch pie recipe, the woman who had submitted it, 
my mother still has a copper-bottomed little saucepan that this woman had given to her as a wedding gift wow. in um, the 60s before, you know, my mother was married. And she still has it. I've cooked from, I've cooked with it. And she has a lot of other more modern um, cookware too. But this is, you know, something that lasted from that time. I love that. And as the title of the piece tells us, uh, your grandmother, who is a central character, obviously, in this essay, uh, carried the cookbook and its butterscotch pie recipe with her when she relocated with your grandfather during World War II. Mm -hmm. Tell us about this and how your grandmother held this time in her life close to her heart. Yeah, it's, you know, I feel like it was, it must have been such a pivotal time in her life because it, it, the music from that era, she listened to even up through, you know, when I was in high school. And I feel like she really prided herself on um, her fashion that I think she uh, picked up while she was in California. And um, yeah, I don't know. Mom says that the cookbook was one that, you know, just everybody in town had a copy of. And Mm. It had several iterations. You know, they would update it every so often. So I imagine it was just part of what she felt like she needed to take with her in order to, you know, continue to cook the the recipes that she enjoyed and liked to cook for my grandfather when they were back home in Georgia. But the the butterscotch pie, it's the one that mom most closely associates to that time when she was in San Francisco. And you, Jennifer, used the pie to try and get inside your grandmother's head. And you you wonder how she reflected on things like, you know, the civil rights movement. And you wonder if she worried about retirement money and, you know, worries big and small, the changes that middle age, you know, was bringing to her body. And tell us why you found it interesting or helpful to think about these questions. Yeah, I think um, when I started looking into this recipe, I was really kind of going through just what I would call a middle-aged funk. You know, I just felt like, okay, well here, you know, here we are. This is, this is my life. Um, nothing horrible had happened to, to, to cause this, but I just, um, I don't know. I felt like I was just sort of had some ennui about life Mm -hmm. in general. And I talked to my mother about it and she was like, oh yes, I remember going through this. She sort of assured me that this is just kind of something that can happen sometimes. And so that caused me to think about my grandmother, because I think a lot of times when we're with people who care for us, they maybe don't let us in on (laughs) some of their, um, some of, you know, what they're thinking and their trials and tribulations. So I, I just started to think like, I wonder, you know, did she, did she go through, have these feelings about middle age and sort of feeling, um, like, okay, well, here we are just kind of going through, you know, going to work, coming home. And so I just started to think about where she was in her life when she was my age at in like mid forties and learned um, that, yes, she had, she had had a hysterectomy, but didn't talk too much about it. And Mm. yeah, so I I don't think I, I learned anything um, specific, but just knowing that just feeling connected to her, I think by 
looking at her recipes and thinking about her life at that time, it, it did help. And I think, you know, anytime I go to cook or bake, um, it's, it's just so great about pulling you right into the moment and helping you or help a person feel grateful for, um, what they've got right there in front of them. And so, yeah, it, it, it was, um, helpful to just, to dig into this history a little bit and to uh, work on this recipe. I'd love to go back to something we began our conversation talking about, and that is the art exhibit that you helped organize back in 2015 called Dirty Pages. And we began talking about it, but it's so interesting to me and I'd love to chat about it some more. And so tell us a little bit about what sort of inspired you and your co-collaborators to um, to organize this, but also get into what draws you to to those grease splatter dog-eared pages of a cookbook a little bit more. So we always laugh that it was it, it it's a very much a print um, centered project that was inspired virtually. <laughs> so a we a friend of mine on Facebook had posted a um a picture of a cookbook. It was a Edna Lewis recipe for chocolate cake mm-hmm. and it's, you know, got all the stains and splatters. And she's kind of, you know, making a joke about how clearly I use this one a lot. And a friend of hers who we did not know at the time left this comment. Um the the comment that, um, oh, I always tell my daughters that when I go, they'll know the good recipes by the dirty pages. Mm. And so I just thought, oh, it would be so interesting to celebrate the the dirty pages. And so I um, got with my friends, Cindy Wall and Erin Murray, and we kind of came up with an idea. And then we reached out to the woman who left the quote <laughs> to make <laughs> sure she would be okay with that. And she ended up becoming a friend. She came to... Um, she came to New Orleans that the original exhibit that we did now lives at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Oh. And she came to the opening there. And that that particular exhibit is 18 women um, ranging in ages from 18 to 88. And it's, um, you know, oh, like home cooks to professional chefs. So it's all over the map. Um, women with their dirty page and the story behind it. And then we've since done two more exhibits with a little bit different theme. It always is around the dirty pages. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just something we do for fun. And so we want to do more, um, but we're working on what that looks like and and what the next theme will be. But it's just been such a joy because I think these these dirty pages, and I I would say this probably about any recipe too, they're just embedded with so many stories. But I Mm. think when they have this layer of of work, (laughs) work and pleasure sort of visible on it, that, um, yeah, we found that when we talk to people about these dirty recipes, and I'm sure you experienced this too, talking with people who are talking about family recipes, they almost instantly go deep. It's, it's not, yeah, it's not like this is the way you make the cinnamon roll. It's more like, well, my aunt had cancer and Mm -hmm. this was her, you know, it's, it's just, it takes it to a different place. For sure. And, you know, I was reading this somewhere and it said something about, you know, 
as things get digitized and get sleeker, you know, sort of our recording of recipes, our search for recipes, these cookbooks sort of become ever more valuable. Mm -hmm. We've said that they're kind of like the vinyl records of the recipe world because (laughs) they're... um, they're usable. I mean, you can use, like you can use a vinyl record, but it's also kind of a collector's item and, um, yeah. yeah. I love that. So Jennifer, is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation about your grandmother, about her cookbook or the pie? So the one thing I would add that I I didn't include in the story is I decided to um, retrace her steps from Um, well, as close as I could from here in Tennessee to San Francisco. So I took a train Mm. um, from Chicago to San Francisco. It took about two days and I just had a coach seat as I figured she probably would have had. And I went to go find um, the lighthouse that they had lived in because I had learned um, my parents had visited a lighthouse museum on a whim and were talking to the curator and they they kind of determined that this lighthouse in Oakland um, was maybe the one that they had lived in. It had been wow. moved from, um, you know, three miles out onto land in, in Oakland, California. And it's a restaurant called Quinn's Lighthouse. And so, you know, wasn't totally sure. I had some old photos, but I thought, I'll go out and check this place out. So when I go in, there's a big black and white photograph on um, the wall of the restaurant. And I pulled up the photograph of my grandmother. And behind her was a railing on the second floor that was pretty um, ornate and distinctive. Mm-hmm. And it matched exactly the railing, you know, in the photograph. But even more than that, the thing that really took my breath away is um, there was a man in the photograph who was sort of, it was sort of a profile almost to the back photo. And I told my husband, um, I'm 95% sure that's my grandfather because it was the way he was standing, the way his hat was positioned on the back of his head, his height. Um, it just, you know, really looks like him. And he was in a Navy, um, sort of like a Oh, a sailor's kind of outfit. And he was in the Coast Guard. And so I, yes. (laughs) And so I took a photograph of that, sent it to my mother and and she said the same thing. She was like, I think that's your grandfather. So I I want to do more digging and find out who took the photo and, you know, where it came from exactly. But it was, it was a great experience just to be able to, to be in maybe this lighthouse that they'd lived in. Hmm. What an incredible discovery. We'll be right back to talk with a special guest about how to translate recipes of the past into the present. Hi, my name is Coral, and I produce Food 52's podcast. Now, Food 52 believes the kitchen is the heart of the home and food is the center of a well-lived life. And if food audio is as much the center of your life as it is mine, here are a couple others from our network that I think you'd like. There's Kristen McGlory's 10-year strong Genius Recipes column turned interview show, The Genius Recipe Tapes. Each week you'll leave with a new recipe or technique that will completely change the way you cook. And Counter Jam, hosted by Peter J. Kim. With the help of musicians and food friends like singer turned sassier Khalees, 
podcaster musician Rishi Kashirway and rapper Ruby Ibarra, Peter seeks a deeper understanding of cultures and the identities we construct through the dishes and songs we put on repeat. Or The Sandwich Universe, a show all about, you guessed it, iconic sandwiches. Hosts and longtime BFFs Molly Boz and Declan Bond partake in philosophical debate. I mean, why even is it called grilled cheese when it's not grilled? Take listener questions and dream up delicious versions for you to try at home tonight. You can find Food 52's podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Welcome back to My Family Recipe. Now we're going to turn our attention to the butterscotch pie recipe itself. And joining Jennifer and me is Rebecca Tershin, Jennifer's friend and pastry chef at City House Nashville. That's been described as a tried and true Nashville staple. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. So happy to be here. So happy you could join in on this conversation. So, Rebecca, you've worked with vintage recipes through the course of your career. Can you tell us a little bit about that and also what's particularly tricky about them? My One of my grandmothers is from the South and one of my grandmothers is um, from New York. And I had their both of their recipe books and sometimes they would have recipes with not much instruction and I would always look at old ones to kind of check I guess for similarities Mm. and like process instructions type of things Um, and I ended up finding one of the missing recipes from my grandmother in a farm journal cookbook. I realized that was where she got it um, because those were the cookbooks of her day, I suppose. And um, there's like, I guess there's little things that I like to watch out for. Things like flour, um, different types of flour and weights of flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one that is comparing people's scoops there are a lot of different weights for flowers and I kind of try to average that out when I'm looking at a recipe I I kind of look against something I've done that I'm comfortable with comfortable with that I know works compared to another version of that and that's a good way to um just get your bearings a little bit that's a good tip um some of the, you have to watch out for fats, I would think. There's a lot of shortening, maybe, um, compared to butter. And sometimes, if you're trying to recreate something that you remember, you might actually like to keep something like margarine or shortening because it will give you that authentic flavor of something that you remember but then in other cases you might want to update it with all unsalted butter whether that's for you know the benefit of that flavor or if it's more of a health choice you know because it's you know shortening and margarine have is poly unsaturated or mm. you know all that stuff um i was gonna say let's see oh another thing i look for is salt because I find that I always add more salt than is called for in old recipes. And then there's um, like the kosher salt we use now yeah. is actually you'd want to add more of that anyway because it's coarser grains and less volume. And, and 
I guess I always would say to like, if you're looking at a cake, check it against a cake you know that works and just look for things that might stick out as far as like, well, that's, you know, the tiniest amount or no salt compared to a modern recipe you might have with like two teaspoons or a tablespoon. Mm. So many of our guests on this podcast have told their stories of struggling with with old recipes. Some of them are incomplete. Some of them are illegible, you know, some not entirely recorded. And Jennifer, when you wrote your My Family Recipe essay, you had never actually made your grandmother's butterscotch pie before. Why is that? You know, I don't know, really. I think it's because I had discovered, I had just really discovered the recipe or the the recipe book. My mom had shown me to it. And yeah, so I, I, it, it was kind of new to me, even though the recipe was super old. Mm. And how did it go the first time you made it? Well, it not great. I mean, I, it was okay, kind of how Rebecca said. I mean, I was like, this is delicious, and I can certainly eat this. But I, I knew that it that it could be improved upon. And even from the little blue cookbook where I got the recipe to the version that I turned in with the story. You know, in the in the little blue cookbook, it was written in paragraph form. So I just separated things out, listed the ingredients, you know, as they appear in the recipe. Tried to add some direction, but I thought about Rebecca the the very first time I made it because I thought I know that she can help here and has the skill and expertise and experience with these older recipes that I don't have. Um, and I believe I even maybe texted you, Rebecca, at the time. I remember, yeah. But I know that we didn't have time to really troubleshoot because my deadline was quick. And mm-hmm. um, so I was really glad that we had this opportunity to take a look at it again and to get her thoughts about it. That's the perfect segue to my next question, which is sort of on a on a more practical level, what were some of the things that you really felt had to be improved. And, and, and once you managed to get a little bit of time with Rebecca, what were, what were some of the things that you ironed out? The big thing for me, I felt like the consistency wasn't right. It, it felt not set up enough. And I thought that maybe I wasn't cooking it long enough, or maybe I, I didn't chill it long enough. Um, but that was the main thing to me was the, the consistency. Mm-hmm. And even the color felt a little off from when I had seen my mother make it. Um, But I might've mentioned in the earlier segment that I don't, you know, my mother um, isn't the best cook. So I didn't really put a lot of stock into how she was, was making it. Um, But same thing. I mean, she made a delicious product, but I just knew that um, it, it could be done better, especially that consistency part. And Rebecca, what were your first thoughts upon studying this recipe? Well, I, one of the things I noticed was the method for making the pudding. It just, it wasn't exactly how I do it. It had several steps to it. And I usually just combine all those into one. So I thought, well, I'll just do this process 
the way my process works because it's all the same ingredients and I know that it's a pudding. Um, I think maybe one thing with the, with the consistency being loose, like Jennifer said, um, I knew from my experience that it could just be that she was a little shy on the cook of the pudding. Mm. People get a little nervous about overcooking pudding and sometimes it's undercooked. And because also because there was flour in it, um, that's kind of like making a roux. So it, it would benefit the flour to be in there longer and cooked longer. Mm. I think so much does come back to confidence too. Yeah. Because I might yeah. have added one of those extra steps because I think I was worried about how the eggs would behave yes. in that yes. warm mm. um, or hot mixture. Yeah. And I think with this, with butterscotch and or caramel and that sort of pudding, there's so much sugar. It um, it's it's more difficult to curdle that. And all a tip I have mm. too is if you do curdle an egg pudding of this sort, you can throw it in a blender or a food processor, and it it will smooth right back out. Oh, I love that. In case that happens. <laughs> And that's, yeah, I even, I've started um, processing my puddings even when they're not curdled because I really enjoy the kind of thickness it creates. Um, and I use cornstarch and this recipe is flour. So I was a little nervous about it not setting quite as well, but it was great. It worked great. Um, I think also, oh, I did, um, I did the recipe a little bit bigger so it would fill that pie crust a little bit more too mm -hmm. and I didn't know if that was an issue she was having but um I've noticed in a lot of older cookbooks with photos that sometimes the filling is like under and you can see the sides of the pastry but just for me personally I liked seeing that like fold I mean full um pastry with like the edges peeking out whether they're crimped or just plain I like the abundance <laughs> I'm thinking about the challenge of you know modernizing or interpreting without changing an old recipe mm -hmm. too much I wonder if either of you or both of you can speak to that or or is it okay to change it given that cooking itself has evolved so much I personally, when I'm looking to recreate something that I've had in my past or that I find in an old book, there are certain parts like um, the pie crust, just say I would, I always use my pie crust recipe that I'm comfortable with. And then I put the thing from the past in it. So that kind of balances things out where I know I'm going to have the base that I'm happy with and comfortable with and then um you know adding the old-fashioned main event to go with that is that's mm. one thing if um that makes any sense I do I think there's a few recipes that both of my grandmothers made that I've made with butter that they made with shortening or margarine that they really just aren't the same. And to me, yeah. on those things, I would rather have it the way they did it. Um, so, yeah, it just depends on how emotionally attached you are to the ex 
explicit experience. Yeah. Taste wise and mouthfeel and all that. But I think, I don't know. I like the idea of just, um, even just thinking about your history while you're doing it, I think connects you to that. And it doesn't have to be the exactly the same to have that experience and to share that with people. I totally agree. Jennifer, what, what have you learned from working on this recipe with Rebecca? And I think I'm also thinking about sort of from an emotional standpoint, did it bring you the sort of sense of connection that you had hoped? Yeah, well, I think just even calling up a friend to get help on something. I mean, you know, knowing that my grandmother knew the woman who submitted this recipe to the cookbook and that they were friends and that this woman had hosted a shower for my mother. And then, you know, Rebecca and I are friends and I'm getting her advice. I mean, there's just something um, nice about that. I feel Mm -hmm. like just um, people connecting and sharing over food. But I also really love what you were just saying, Rebecca, about using ingredients. You know, I think sometimes I like to hear, <laughs> I guess, mm-hmm. that it's maybe okay to use shortening sometimes if, if mm-hmm. that feels right to you. And yeah. I I don't know that I hear that enough. So I really appreciate that. Um, and then just technically, I love your, you know, sort of, um, how do I say, like, um, encouraging me to have confidence that I don't have in this kind of dish for sure. So that's, that's nice. And that it's okay to mess up. And Mm -hmm. and if you do mess up, there are ways to fix it. And um, there's even story within the mistakes. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you Thank you so much for listening to my family recipe if you've enjoyed this episode go ahead and subscribe to the show and don't forget to leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think of our delicious stories and our wonderful guests special thanks for this episode to jennifer justice and rebecca tertian you can find links to jennifer's essay and her recipe for butterscotch pie in the show notes My Family Recipe is produced by Dylan Hoyer and Hannah Forden. Our Julia Child Foundation Fellow is Kelly Spivey. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Cora Lee is Food52 Podcast Network's producer. Our theme song is Vittoro by Aeronaut. This show is a collaboration between Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. There's much more to read and to listen to. Find even more stories at foodfight2.com and heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, I'm Hannah Forden, Heritage Radio Network's program manager and a producer of this podcast. If you're loving My Family Recipe, I have a few other recommendations to offer from HRN. Everyone has a food story, and Let's Talk About Food is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about pleasure, scarcity, overabundance, all the ways that food delights and disappoints. From our first mouthful of applesauce in front of our adoring family, to our first bite into a jalapeno pepper, 
and everything in between. For fans of storytelling, this is a podcast you're going to devour. For fans of chef interviews, Inside Julia's Kitchen will introduce you to the bright lights of today's food world. Enjoy rich conversations with Yotam Adelengi, Rodney Scott, Melissa King, and other leaders in the culinary world. HRN is an independent, member-supported, nonprofit podcast network. Listen to these podcasts wherever you're listening now, or visit heritageradionetwork.org to browse our library of 35 weekly shows and more than 15,000 archived episodes. Start exploring at heritageradionetwork.org.